Hey folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 552 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Tuesday, November the 16th, 2010. Uh, folks, that means it's what, a month and a week, two, month and two weeks from Christmas? Six weeks till Christmas time, guys. I told yous. I told yous. I'm going back to being in the coal region there. Uh, no, I, I told you guys over and over again this year how quickly time would fly, and here it is. Uh, we're looking at the end of the year in uh, seven, seven and a half weeks, something like that. So hopefully you're, you're, you're trucking on with your preps and you're getting prepared for whatever 2011 will bring. Uh, and then moving on forward from that and uh, trying to live that better life the way we say every day, whether times get tough or even if they don't. Today we're going to try to help you do that by going through your questions, your calls, your commentary, everything that you send to me in an email to jack at the com. Again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com is how you get on a show like this. Put question for Jack in the subject line. Uh, put your question. If you're doing a question, put a short question and then give me details after it so I can screen the questions faster or a link to an article or something like that. Anything you'd like me to comment on, you can get on the show this way. Uh, I do get a lot of emails. I don't get them all on. I do my best. Before we get into that, though, let's do our housekeeping. And we have a contest today, so don't skip the housekeeping because you can win an SOE Tactical Gear Cobra Rigger Belt. Um, if you uh, take a shot at winning this, I'm giving away six of them. They're valued at $65 a piece. All right. First up, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, ShelfReliance.com. Not self, but ShelfReliance.com. Specializing in all your prepping needs, specifically with food storage and automatic food rotation systems. Uh, with their uh, systems like their Pantry, Pantry Plus, uh, with their Harvest Large Rack systems. Absolutely outstanding. Great equipment. Lots of great food options and other prepping supplies as well. Uh, but really known for those food storage and automatic food rotation systems. Some of the best stuff I've ever looked at. So check them out. Like all other sponsors, they are on the website in our far right-hand margin at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You'll find their banner, and that way you know you're dealing with one of our actual sponsors if you go through their banner. Uh, next up today, Mary Beth Maidmont and silverandgoldshop.com. Great assortment of silver rounds, a little bit of gold action going on there as well. Excellent service. Uh, really goes out of her way to take care of people and a good supporter of the show. Been a, an advertiser for a long time. Uh, just renewed for another full year with us, so she is a strong supporter of the show. So try to support her back. She's also done something for the MSB. I mean, it's hard to cut discounts on silver. Um, we looked at doing a silver coin for TSP, and we can't even afford to do it. I mean, that's what it comes down to. We'd have to sell at such thin margins in the gear shop. It just doesn't make sense for us. So to be in, the, in that business, you have to be in that business and do nothing else. And uh, she does a good job of it. And what she's done is MSB members, if you're buying her divisible Tea Party silver rounds, the original round she started with, uh, the new version of it, though, the one that can actually be broken into quarter ounces if you had to for barter, uh, she's giving 50 cents a piece off on those. And that's not a huge discount. But it's something, and it's because she wants to support the audience. 
So check out Mary Beth Maidmont, and if you are MSB, make sure uh, you get your discount whenever you order T. Marty Silver Rounds. Um, also want to tell you, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. Support the show at $0.10 cents an episode. Get a bunch of free eBooks. And I just did a bunch of updates to it yesterday to make it more easy, uh, easier to navigate, easier to find your discounts and things like that. Move some stuff around. Added all the archives in. So MSB members, just tuned up the back office for you so you guys can find what you're looking for easier. Uh, last but not least... Let's go ahead and uh, give away those Cobra Rigger belts. Uh, here's how you play the contest. You send me an email. In the email, you put a code word in the subject line. The code word is not code word. Don't put that there. In the body of the email, give me your name, your shipping address, so if you win, we can get it shipped to you. Uh, and the email address you used when you joined the contest. You have to re-register to play this contest. You can do that today. But go to the website, click on Listener Appreciation Contest, and register. If you don't register, you cannot play, because this is about sharing the show with other people, and you saying you'll do that. The code word is not going to be something I give out to you today. I think since John's given away over $700 worth of gear, we should send some traffic to his site. So here's how you play. Go to OriginalSOEGear.com. Original soegear.com that's all one word again original soegear.com on the home page in the second paragraph you will see a uh, the second paragraph ends with a sentence that says John's gear has been put to the test for and then it completes with a phrase I want the last word from that paragraph the last word from that second paragraph all lowercase in the subject line alone I will give away a free Cobra Rigger belt to respondent number one Number 10, number 25, number 50, number 75, and number 120. That should take us all through the day, so everybody should have a shot to, to, to win. All right, so it's well spread out. Everybody gets a shot. The quicker you respond, the more likely you are to win. Again, go to OriginalSOEGear.com. Last word of the second paragraph. And while you're there, after you send your email and try to win, take a look around his site and see some of the great gear that John makes. Okay, and John's doing more than just giving away stuff. He's giving anybody that wants to buy anything from his store a 10% discount for the rest of the week. Here's how this works. You go to his site, pick out the items you want like you're going to buy them. Uh, and you won't actually pay. You'll actually like submit an order without paying. In the notes put, um, survival podcast listener would like to receive 10% discount uh, for this week. Uh, they'll get back to you with a quote to bill you so you can pay through PayPal or, or, or what have you. Um, and you get 10% off anything you want to buy from SOE this week in addition to possibly winning the belt. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the show. Uh, I have a, gr a great uh, group of questions today. And um, really awesome uh, stuff you guys sent in. And um, once again, we've got some hard ones. You guys send me some hard questions once in a while. Let's start out with the first one. It's I don't really see this as a survival question, but I think as survivalists and preppers and uh, anybody that's concerned about individual freedom and liberty, we can learn something by looking at it. This could be a whole show, not one I'm going to do because I'm not an expert on this. But here's the question. Jack, I would like to get your survivalist take on the Waco tragedy. Were the Branch Davidians justified in defending themselves and their property from excessive force of the B uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives? Did the FBI and the Combat Applications Group Delta overstep their constitutional boundaries and infringe on personal liberties and inalienable rights? Thanks, Josh. 
Okay, first, like I said, I'm not an expert on this, and some people are really into this stuff, and they really examine every bit of it, and I may get a fact or two wrong. If I do, you can correct me. Don't be an ass about it, because if you're an ass to me, I'm going to be an ass back to you. I'm telling you right now, I'm not an expert on this event. I can tell you what I what I do know from examining it, from documentaries about it, from listening to people that were there in the documentaries, in their own words, explain what was going on. First of all, in my view, David Koresh was a complete freaking loon. He either believed or convinced other people to believe that he was Jesus Christ reincarnated. I don't think David Koresh was Jesus Christ. I don't think most of you do either. And that alone has a lot of problems. I believe the guy was having sex with underage girls. That's a problem too. I don't know really the background of what set off the government to go in there. I do know that when they went there, they had a warrant. And at that point, when the government shows up with a warrant, it is constitutional for them to come in, and you are supposed to let them in. And not doing so was a mistake. But let me don't sound like I'm back in the government here, because let me tell you some other things that I feel about this. Number one, our government has come out and said, we screwed up. And I'd actually like to put the F word in there, because that's how bad it was. And that's pretty much what they've said. One thing you can bet about the government, when they screw something up, the first thing they try to do is say they didn't. When they screw it up bad enough where they have to admit it, they always say they screwed it up, but never as bad as they really did. So when they come out and say, we really screwed up, that means they really, 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 really screwed up. And there's a lot of blood on their hands as far as I'm concerned. But shooting at these agents, because they tried to come into your facility, possessing a warrant, that was on the Branch Davidians. Now here's the thing. They knew this guy was a nut, this Koresh guy. They knew he was a flippin' loon. And he, they knew he controlled this, these people. The way to handle this was to, to do this by making him help them. By forcing him to help him. If they had a warrant, they could have got a warrant to take him into temporary custody. The guy, ne It's not like the guy never left the compound. It's not like this guy was fortified in there. My understanding is that Koresh often jogged off his compound, go jogging down the road or whatever. They could have waited for him to come out, went and picked him up. Once they had him picked up, they could have said, look, we need to go in there. Here's our warrant. We're going to go in there. You're going to help us go in there. And the whole thing could have been avoided. Um, I don't know that I can really say much more than that. But here's what I, here's my big lesson from this for everybody. Outside of Tito Walkie, right? Outside of the end of the world as we know it, and I'm wrong about the, the and they all come to get everybody, then you got to fight, right? Outside of that, If authorities that have access to things like Bradley fighting vehicles ever come and want to come into your home and show you a piece of paper that says they have the constitutionally given authority to come in, you let them in. If they're going to apprehend you, you let them apprehend you. You're going to end up in a court. That's where you plead your case. And if you feel you're not going to be treated fairly, they're going to run around on you, the end game, rig you, whatever, and you're not going to be able to, you are highly likely to still be able to get out on something called bail. And you're a lot, lot more likely to wake up breathing in the future if you play that card, and if you feel you got to run, run then, than try to stop heavily armed agents from getting into your property. That's just dumb. I'm not suggesting you skip out on bail. I'm certainly not suggesting you say that you would skip out on bail because then you're not going to get it. What I am saying is that had they let them in, had they taken them in on weapons charges and seized the, the illegal property that was there, that probably every single person that had been apprehended would have been out on the street within a week. 
Both sides are culpable here. And the government is far more culpable than it wants to admit. That's the best I can do. Again, if you've studied this thing in detail, if you know, if I got something wrong, don't be an ass with me. Because I'm telling you right now, this is not something I sit around thinking at night. But I do think that it's a teachable moment for all of us. And we need to understand, it is dumb to think, and here's the, here's, I mean, if there's nothing else to learn here, we had a, a large group of men willing to fight and die for their cause, heavily armed, and they couldn't pull it off. Not with the kind of force that was brought in against them. And and whether you agree with me or not, my feeling is that force was elevated as the force inside was was understood. So the more force they that were willing to, to offer for resistance, the more force the government brought in. I think the way they ended it was, was really a tragedy. And I think there's people in our government that are directly responsible for the death of some innocent people inside there. So if you were, if you were thinking I'm not hard enough on the government, I, I am. But I'm still telling you, it's like a fist fight that didn't have to happen. It didn't have to go down that way. All right, let's take another one, maybe something a little bit better. But eh, you guys send the questions and get this one. Uh, Jack, do you know if other central banks around the world loan their money into existence, or is the Federal Reserve unique? Federal Reserve is not unique. In fact, it's more than just the Federal Reserve that we're looking at here, because remember... In an economy like ours, it's not just that our central bank loans money into existence. It's that the commercial banks also loan money into existence again. So they put the monetary base in and then the banks loan money against a reserve requirement. And it's actually worse than them doing what we're doing. Many of the modern nations of the world are less controlled than we are with loaning money into existence. Let me give you an example. So again, real quick as I, as I go to do this, just to make sure everybody understands, when... Uh, a bank in the United States loans out money. They create money out of thin air. When you go borrow money to buy a house, they don't give you money that they have, right? They actually, when they write the loan, new money is created, backed by your debt. Okay, and then that goes on their books as an asset, money to be received. And the new money that was created, they gave it to you. You bought the house with it. Whoever sold the house received the funds and then dumps that into the economy and it goes elsewhere and flows. That's how money grows in the United States. And that's why banks make so dadgone much money. It ain't the little bitty interest rates that they make here and there. It's the actual creation of money out of thin air and then interest against money that doesn't really exist. But in the United States, at least we keep a little bit of a lid on things. We have a 10% reserve requirement. And think about it this way. It's like going to the poker table. And you have $1,000. And they say, well, you can bet up to $10,000. Cuz at least today you can cover 10% of your losses. And as you earn more money, let's say you start out with 10, you do really good, you get up to, um, you, you, you win $10,000. And then they say, well, you can bet up to $100,000 now, at least you can cover 10%. Kind of like bail, right? 10% of the, the, the bond, 10% of the bail amount, and you can get a bond against you and, and get out. Kind of like that. That's not really the same thing, but it is gambling in a way. Because what the bank is, is then saying is, okay, look, we've got out $100 million worth of loans. We can cover $10 million. That would be a tiny bank, by the way. But let's just say that's what it is. So the, the aspect that everybody would call due all at the same time is very low. And if as many as 10% call due, they could cover everything and they could get through that period. And that's what we do in the United States. What if I told you that some very large countries, very modern nations have a 0%? Let me give you some countries that have a 0% reserve requirement. 
meaning the bank can do this as much as they want with no limit. Australia, Canada, Mexico, New Zealand, Sweden, and the United Kingdom, they all have none. Uh, the Czech Republic has a 2% reserve requirement. The Eurozone, so everywhere the Euro is in power, 2%. South Africa, 2.5%. Switzerland, 2.5%. Poland, 3%. Chile, 4.5%. India, 6%. Bangladesh, 5.5%. Lithuania, 6%. Pakistan, 5%. Taiwan, 7%. Latavia, 8%. Jordan, 8%. Maori, wherever that is. I don't know, know where Maori is. Sounds like an African nation. 15%. All right, a little smarter than us. 8% in Zambia. Uh, Burundi has eight and a half. Hungary, two percent. Like a bank can loan out, only has to keep two percent in reserve. Ghana, nine percent. United States, ten. Sri Lanka, ten. Bulgaria, twelve. Croatia, fourteen. Costa Rica, fifteen. Estonia, fifteen. China, eighteen. And it was just increased from seventeen and a half. Hong Kong, eighteen. Tazakistan, twenty. Surname, uh, 25, Lebanon, 30, Brazil, 15. So yeah, they all do the same thing we do. All of them. Some of them with less reserve requirements, some of them with more reserve requirement. but basically every modern economy is currently a Keynesian-based loan money into existence economy where the economy is backed by debt, and they trade that's so that they can trade with us. Pretty much the way the economy's been in, in the world for the last hundred years is as goes the U.S., so goes the world. And certainly since the end of World War II. By the end of World War II, there was no doubt the United States was the most dominant nation in the world with the greatest spending power and the most wealth. And by the time that became the case, if you wanted to trade in the world, you had to be able to trade with the U.S. If you want to trade with the U.S., you have to kind of mimic what they're doing. If you want the exchange rates and everything to work out right, and especially if you're big enough to matter. If you're a little tiny country that doesn't really do anything and don't have any oil, they don't really care what you do. But if you're a major trading partner and you want to trade with us, well, you're going to use our banking system. doesn't mean you use our money, but you're going to run your money the way we run our money so our money can work with each other and we can float against the dollar and float back. You know, that's the way it is. I'm going to save more on that because there's another question. You guys always bring this stuff together uh, later on that's going to be deeper. All right, next question. Hi, Jack. Ryan from Wisconsin. Would backing our currency with gold and silver really help strengthen the dollar? I only asked along with your, because along with your show, I listened to Midnight Radio Network with Eric Harley and Gary McNamara. Never heard of them. Uh, they had a caller say that if we took all the gold out of Fort Knox and used it to back our currency, it would strengthen it. Eric and Gary came back and said it wouldn't because the currency is only judged on other countries' currencies. Just wanted your opinion about it. I wish I could go on the show someday. Uh, that you could go on the show someday. They're in your area. Probably could give you good information for all the truckers who listen to the show. Maybe I'll look these guys up, see if they want to have me as a guest. Uh, maybe is the answer to would gold strengthen the currency. It depends on how it was done. First of all, we wouldn't take all the gold out of Fort Knox. The entire purpose of the gold being at Fort Knox is for it to be there in reserve against the currency. That's why it was originally supposed to be there. In other words, we don't want to take our gold out of any place if we're going to use it to back our currency. It all needs to be in a very safe, secure location, because what we're saying is we can, instead of covering the money with debt, we cover the money with gold. Would it make our currency stronger? It all depends. It all depends on who's in control and how that's done. And it all depends on whether or not we really want our currency to be stronger. See, this is a problem that a lot of people have that believe that, I don't know, I, I think there's people that feel like, Gold is God's money or something. Like they have a religious belief that gold is money and nothing else is. And the problem is when you think that way, you lose all rational thought. 
Because it becomes a faith-based thing instead of a rationality-based thing. Gold standard is fine if you want to run your nation that way and if you have enough gold to make it work. But here's the reality. It's not like all of a sudden we go back to 19, you know, 1910 and a one ounce piece of gold is worth 20 US dollars. If we do that, our currency is so strong, we can basically import anything we want, but exportation business dies. So your, your, your radio hosts there are right in a way that you have to look at currency as it relates to other nations and there's two types of currency strength. There's, there's kind of like the exchange rate. Uh, let's say we'll make up a currency, foofy flus, right? And one dollar's worth a hundred foofy flus. So that would seem like the dollar's very strong against the foofy flu. But really it's more about relative currency strength. In the land of foofy flu, what does a hundred foofy flus buy? If a hundred foofy flus buys almost exactly on their economy what a dollar buys here, a foofy flu's a penny. And it doesn't even matter at that point. It's not really that one's stronger than the other. Unless you're holding one, And the value ratio changes. So if I go out and buy a million Foofy Flus for $100,000 at this point, and the Foofy Flu um, strengthens, and $1 is now worth 50, flu, 50, 50 Foofy Flus, I can convert back to dollars. That's arbitrage. And now my $100,000 is worth $200,000. But gold doesn't necessarily stop that, prevent that, or do anything, because it all comes down to how much is a dollar backed by gold? Or how much gold does a dollar represent? And that then gets thrown in with the rest of the world. So as the gold supply is bought up and dumped, that can cause the dollar to fluctuate if it's backed 100% by gold. This is why I am not, I am not for returning to 100% gold standard. I am for returning to some standard of value in the nation that backs our currency with gold as a part of it. Maybe gold is 10% of the equation. Maybe the value of the total GDP of the nation is another percentage. And things like that. The big thing with our dollar and its problem is that it's controlled by a private institution called the Federal Reserve. In conjunction with the government, people say, well, they're not really private because it's the, the government and the, and the private corporations working together. So it's quasi-government. You know what it is? It's called freaking fascist. That's what, again, the word comes up and people start thinking of Nazis if you've not heard this before. Our nation is a fascist economy and things like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac and the Federal Reserve, these quasi-government, quasi-private companies are the epitome of fascism. Fascism is not about executing people. That's what a fascist government did. There are communist governments that have executed people and there's communist governments that are more of a, what we call, I guess Mark Levin calls a soft tyranny. So it's not like once you're like, okay, you're a democratic government, you'll never kill anybody. There's plenty of democracies that killed people. Fascism is an economic system. And it's about the government and corporations working together and using the divisions between the classes as an adv advantage to further the goals of both business and the state. <laughs> That's what we have. Federal Reserve is that. And here's the reality. When I talk about returning to public currency, where the people control the money through the Congress, the way the Constitution says, and people say, well, if we give the Constitution, if we give the power to create money to our, our, our Congress, they'll just spend money like crazy. There'll be no limit. That's what they do already. If you want that objection to fly with me, you have to tell me one time that our Congress proposed, proposed spending, sent it over, uh, you know, the House proposed it, sent it over to the Senate, Senate approved it, 
the two branches of the, the Congress sent it off to the president. president signed it into law. The Federal Reserve said, can't spend this much. We're not going to loan it to you. We're not going to let you sell about you, you, We're going to put a cap on it. That's too much. You're spending too much. It's never happened. Not once. So the concept that the Federal Reserve limits the spending is stupid. Because it's, you, you can't say something's true when it's never occurred even once. So all it does is when they spend too much, we end up with debt against it. Where if they could create the currency internally, we could do it debt-free, or we could do it with better debt. But the answer is is maybe. Would gold back currency strengthen the dollar? It all depends on how it's run. See, it doesn't matter what creates the cap on your money. In, total, in other words, the total supply. This is how the dollar strength of the week is in the most simplistic form. There's more than this, but this is the simplistic way to understand it. The more dollars in circulation, the weaker each one is. The less dollars in circulation, the stronger each one is. Gold would create sort of a cap and say, well, we can't go past this number. We can't just keep creating more. Well, do you take the fractional reserve commercial lending out from underneath it and only you know, cap the base, or do you cap everything? These are big questions. And then, how? Okay, we, so we say there's enough gold in the United States right now in reserve to have um, $10 trillion in circulation. Well, if we decide there's not enough money in circulation and we simply say that now that same gold represents $12 trillion, nothing's really changed. At least the money's not backed by debt. So that might be a more stable currency, but internationally it doesn't necessarily make it any stronger. Tough question, hard one to do on a short answer, but that's the best I can do for you. And hopefully those of you that have always thought that, well, if we got rid of the Federal Reserve and we put the printing press, so to speak, in the hands of Congress, that they would run away with it, maybe you have a new way of understanding that that doesn't even matter. Because they've never proposed a dollar of spending and had the Fed come back and say, no, you can't have the money. Not once. And why would the Fed, when every time they borrow money, it's profitable for the Fed? All right, let's go ahead and take another question. All right, this next question comes from Randy. Randy says, hello, Jack. New to survival and prepping, would like to know which containers to store my water in that's safest over the long haul. Glass is generally not an option for me, probably because you're afraid it's going to break and it's heavy. Um, I use empty milk containers and jugs because they store drinkable liquid anyway. Am I wrong? Also, I'm considering joining the group with AutoPay. I guess you mean the MSB. You can do that anytime you want to. Not sure how to do it. You go to the site, click on Members, uh, and sign up. Um, that's how you do that. Also, how do I get on the phone during a live podcast? Thanks for everything. Let's start out with the easy one. How do you get on the phone during a live podcast? There is no such thing. When you listen to the shows on Friday, those are not live. Those are people that call 866-65-THINK and leave a message. You leave a message of up to two minutes, and eventually I get around to your calls, and I put you on the air, and I do your calls. So most of those people have called in about two weeks is my backlog right now on those calls. I might do Thursday and Friday call-in shows because I'm really backed up because of Friday's show that was a listener call-in show. Water containers. Um, I don't really like milk jugs, per se, for holding water. I like water jugs for holding water better because milk jugs are a plastic, and they're designed to last for a relatively short period of time in contact with acid. And milk has lactic acid in it. So if we take milk out of the refrigerator and we rinse the, the, the plastic out, it's already been in contact with that lactic acid. It's already begun somewhat of a breakdown process of the plastic. And if I store water in there, some of the plastic, and it, there's probably no BPA in most milk jugs now, I say probably. I'm really not aware of that. I'd like to know. You guys let me know on that one. But any plastic has certain things you don't want to consume in it, 
And the longer it's exposed to something that breaks it down, like an acid, the more of it could be in the water. So I worry about that a little bit. I worry about making sure you've absolutely, completely cleaned out uh, the, uh, the the container with something like um, milk. But that's easy. Scalding hot water, good rinse, a little bit of bleach, mix that out of there, dump that out, and you, could, and you can use it if you want to. The reason I say I like water jugs better is because the only thing that's ever been in them was water. They're chemically the same as a milk jug, but they haven't had that exposure to acid. And we keep uh, probably about 30 gallons of water that we I think we paid 60 cents a gallon for um, as reserve uh, at our bug out location and about 20 here uh, that are just in jugs like that because they're portable, easy to move. And every once in a while, we just go ahead and drink them and get new, and it's very cheap to do. Um, if you're going to want to store containers to keep water in, my feeling is that the best containers to, to use as a dual-purpose container are the big 2-liter soda bottles. They fit into a freezer better, and I like to put water in the freezer. Not to preserve the water, but because if it's frozen, uh, it helps keep the freezer frozen longer if we lose power, especially a deep freezer. So the bottom of our deep freezer is lined with 2-liter soda bottles. We don't drink soda out of 2-liter bottles, so we get them from other people to do. Could you save us a few bottles? Uh, that plastic is designed to be in contact with a far more acidic substance, soda. So you do the same type of cleaning procedure, and you have a much more durable, longer-lasting container that if you keep them in a closet are less likely to rupture on you. So, But the best thing to do would be to have dedicated containers for your water. I mean, that would be the absolute best thing you could do, is to have things like water barrels or things like that and that are designed to hold potable water. Uh, but any of these things are okay. You're not going to hurt yourself. And certainly, if uh, I was in a survival situation and somebody had 20 gallons of water that were in old milk jugs that had been cleaned out uh, sitting around, I would use that water. And I wouldn't think twice about it in a survival situation. The best way to safeguard yourself, so to speak, I guess, would be to whenever you do rotate your water, and it's not really necessary, but it's still a good idea. And the reason I say that is because there could be some residue left in that container. So by cleaning it out a second time, let's say every six months, use that water to water your your plants and, and use it outside. Don't just dump it down the drain, but don't consume it. That way it's only a reserve for consumption. But long term, I'd look to more dedicated water storage uh, containers. Uh, again, the water cans that are available from stores are a good idea. I really do like using two-liter soda bottles, though. Uh, assuming that they're well cleaned out, especially in the freezer, uh, they're going to have less of an exchange of you know, that plastic, whatever is in that plastic. Uh, our primary method of, of, uh, of water uh, reserve is ideal, but it doesn't work for everybody because not everybody has the resources. We have a well, and we now have power backup to the well, and we're going to be this, this winter putting in uh, solar uh, charging to that power backup system. So we have a 685-foot deep well. And so we're going to have water no matter what. We still store some. We have a pump failure, an electronic component of the pump fail, what have you. And even if you can go out and use a manual, a manual pump head, if we ever ended up in a long-term situation where it was necessary, but still, short-term outages, it's good to have a few gallons of water around. It makes it simple and easy to use. All right, let's go ahead and take another one. Um, next question from Jake. Jake says, keeping vehicles paid off. Is a great way to stay out of debt, but in order to keep a vehicle running, there's more to it than just changing motor oil. Keeping up with the check engine light, flushing out things like the transmission and radiator, etc., are critical as well. Have you ever done a segment on covering these basics to help preppers keep vehicles paid, paid off vehicles and save money on cost of repairs? By the way, your show is great. I've never missed an episode since I started listening. Um, let me give you a couple ways to do this. One, 
take your vehicle to a maintenance facility and say, I need a schedule of maintenance. I need you guys to let me know every time I should bring this vehicle in and everything that should be done to it. Right now it's got 70,000 miles on it or whatever, uh, right through 200,000 miles. And they'll say, great, here you go, because they want you to come in and have them do it. Um, that'll give you a great list of things that you should make sure get done. Now, they may tell you things that don't need to be done. They may have a frequency that's higher than necessary, but if you want optimum maintenance, you know, and now once you have that list, you can decide what can I do myself and what do I want to pay them to do. There are plenty of things on my vehicles that I know how to do, that I am capable of doing, but when it comes down to it, I let somebody else do it. Uh, we have a, um, I can't think of the name now, but it's something break, just breaks here in, um, Dallas Fort Worth. They're all over the place. They're probably all over the country. And they always have this special on with this bimbo lady. And she is a bimbo in the commercial anyway. An actress that acts like a bimbo. What do I, what's wrong with my brakes? They're squealing. And, and they say, you know, bring it in and we'll uh, fix them all for $99.95. And they will. But every time you take a vehicle in there, oh, you need a caliper, you need a rotor, you need this, and you need that. And all of a sudden, every single time I've seen a vehicle go to just brakes, the quote comes back between five and $750. And every time they've told me that, I've said, just put the freaking brakes on for a hundred bucks. But sir, I don't care. Put the, did, did metal touch metal? No. Put, so having some knowledge about your vehicles is a good way to get people to do the crap work you don't want to do. Because if I go out and buy brake pads from one of my trucks, I'm going to almost spend a hundred dollars on pads and then I got to go out there and do it. But I still know how to do it in case I have to do it myself. So like one of the things I've done for all my vehicles, once they got paid off, I build them a reserve kit. So I go out and I have enough oil for two oil changes. I have two oil filters. I have every belt that that vehicle could ever need and every hose that that vehicle could ever need. And I have a set of brake pads for that vehicle. Uh, and I have things like PVC valves and all the basic stuff. And even if I don't do the work, I keep the stuff and I know how to put it on. And that's a great way to let somebody else do the work but keep it in reserve. So that's one thing you can do. Um, the other thing you can do is, you know, I haven't gone this far yet because we have three vehicles especially, but long term, I, like I have an extra set of wheels for one of my trucks. It's probably not a good, a bad idea to go out and um, have extra sets of tires for long term. But see, the problem with that is when tires are kept for long enough, they actually start to break down and become dangerous to use as well. So that to be stored in very safe facilities. I don't know on that one. Um, this is definitely something I could do an entire show on. But the big thing is for you to know your vehicle and know the components that are designed to wear out. And once that vehicle is paid for in full and you're relying on it long term, it's a great idea for at least the things you have the capability to do to have the, the design to wear out components in reserve. And again, the big ones for every vehicle, brake shoes and pads, if it's a clutch vehicle, a stick shift, a clutch, um, every belt and every hose. All of those things are actually, I mean, the belts and the hoses technically aren't, but they really are. And they're also critical components where the vehicle will not run without them. Oil change is a definite. If you ever go to a repair shop and a mechanic wants to sell you what's called a transmission flush, instead of actually dropping the pan, draining it, replacing the filter, they're just going to push fluid through, do not do that. Uh, that is a terrible idea. In fact, I have seen it destroy transmissions on high-mileage vehicles. Vehicles, 100, 120,000 miles on them. Uh, never really had a transmission service. People go in there and they, they do what's called a flush. Uh, where, and what this is, is you just keep pumping fluid through until it comes out clean. 
but it, it's less expensive uh, in theory, and uh, it's easier and quicker to do for the mechanic. That's why they like to sell it because uh, unlike a, a, a transmission oil change, transmission fluid change, and when they do that, they actually unbolt the pan, just you know that holds all the, the transmission fluid in, pull it down, pull out the filter. And replace the gasket in the filter and put it back in. That is the way to service the transmission. That should be done somewhere between 60 and 100,000 miles on every automatic transmission vehicle. And the more often you do it, the longer the transmission will last. It is a pain in the ass job if you do it yourself. Um, it's really tough to do without a lift or a ramp and get under a lot of these, these lower vehicles. I don't even like to do it under a truck. I don't even like to do it. I know how. That's one that I definitely, you know, take it in. Whenever I talk to a repair shop about say, transmission servicing and they want to do a flush and they tell me that's a good thing, I find a new shop. That's one thing I will not abide. Um, those are just some ideas there. Let's go ahead and take another one. My girlfriend is a teacher and has gotten a $1,000 grant from a local energy company to teach her students about alternative energy, energy consumption, energy efficiency. I was wondering if you had any ideas that might help us spend the money wisely. We're thinking of using the money uh, on dual-use technology, things that would help teach her class and be useful after the class is over. Last year, she bought a solar oven with a smaller grant which has made for some great camping trips and picnics. I understand this might not be a show topic, but thought you might have a thought on the matter. Thanks for everything you do, Josh. Sure, it's a show topic, because just like you have some grant money to do this with, there might be somebody sitting out there going, I got a thousand bucks to work on uh, energy efficiency. What do I do? I might answer them a little bit differently, because if you have a house, you're going to put insulation in. I think if you use a government or an energy grant uh, energy company grant to put insulation in your house for education, uh, you'll probably get in trouble, so you can't do that one. So, but that might be like, if you were a homeowner, that'd be the first thing I'd say. But for teaching a class, well, um, you can build a really nice solar backup system for a couple hundred bucks. Talk about a couple, uh, deep cycle batteries, wiring them up, um, getting an inverter, getting a charge controller, 60 to 100 watts of solar panels. Maybe you're looking at, if you do it really decked out, 500 bucks. I think that would be a great system to build. The kids would learn everything they needed on uh, by doing that to actually solar power a home. Remember, a solar backup system like I've just described is a miniature power plant. So if you can make a miniature one, you can make a large one. So I think that would be an outstanding thing. And maybe you spend the other half of it on a wind turbine. And then you wire the wind turbine into the backup system and you generate power. Um, once the project is over, from my understanding, you get to keep this stuff. Um, you can expand it as you choose. That's what I would do with it. Just my uh, quick thoughts on that one. Let's go ahead and take another one. Um, Hi, Jack. My wife and I are looking for, for some financial advice. We have no debt other than our house mortgage, uh, which is at $110,000. I'm the only one working right now and just make under and make just under $50,000 a year before taxes. My wife has a trust fund from a personal injury lawsuit where she received $270,000 three years ago. Its current value is two seventeen due to a stock market drop and has a 2% penalty for dissolving the fund. Do we pay off the house? Also, we will have the opportunity to acquire 56 acres of our dream property within the next few years and we'll need to build a house if all goes well. I am set on cutting our losses and being debt-free, but the wife feels more secure with the money within reach for emergency. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for all you do. My gut would be initially, of course, pay the house off. You still have $100,000 in reserves. Now you start paying yourself money outside of this trust thingy 
where you don't have a penalty for withdrawal, and every penny you're spending on that house, $110,000 house, your total payments probably over a thousand bucks. Your more principal and interest, the part you would dissolve, um, you know, maybe it's a more expensive house. You've paid it down to that. I don't know, but let's say it's seven hundred bucks. You pay the house off. Five years of seven hundred dollars a month paid to yourself instead of to your mortgage company. Uh, seven times uh, six is seven times seventy. That's what seven thousand eight thousand eighty five hundred. Um, so. It would take about 10 years to pay yourself the money back, a little bit longer, actually. Uh, so if you're staying put, it's definitely what you want to do because you're going to free yourself of some debt. But now you're talking, you're telling me we might be going out and acquiring 56 acres and building a house in a few years. Is this a remote vacation property? If so, pay off the freaking house. Is this, we're going to leave this house and move there? Don't pay off the house if that's the case. Don't do it. Because once you lock the money into that piece of real estate, if a real estate market crashes, you've lost the equity 100%. If the real estate market crashes and you still owe on the property, you go to sell it, you have to short sell it, you can pull what you need from your own cash reserves to cover it. If it's a really bad situation and you end up foreclosed upon, you can probably still shelter the money. I'm not saying you should do that, but in some extreme circumstance, it may, you know, so in this case, maybe your wife's right. I'll tell you one thing, secure that freaking money. If it, if it went down in value from 250 to 217 in three years, you, it sounds like you got it right about the peak and you really took the beating and now you've recovered some most. Like I bet you it was worth a lot less for a while. You need to put that money into a more secure, uh, form. Even if it's in a trust, then you would have to, I don't care if it's in, I'm not saying to take it out of the trust. Don't liquidate the trust, though you might want to. 2% of that, uh, it might be worth it to get full control of the money, if that would help you. But even if you don't want to, you should be able to talk to whoever's managing the trust for you about putting it into a more secure income generation format. Uh, something where you're holding more secure uh, stocks that are more based on dividends, uh, holding some of it as pure cash. Uh, please secure that up. It sounds like you're in some of a, like a volatile mutual fund trust, and that is not a good place for your money. Uh, but overall, I would be okay not paying this house off right now with that sh short term plan to move and being able to go out and purchase that new property outright, uh, or finance only a very small portion of it, or, you know, it depends on how much you're going to spend. I would also say, be careful on how much you think you need to have a dream property. If that 56 acres in a house is going to dissolve most of your money, maybe you need to scale it back a little bit. Just so you have freedom. Just so you're not house and land poor. Now, if you can do everything for a couple hundred thousand that you want to do, fine. Um, but with this market and with a one-year plan, I feel pretty good you're going to get your money out of the house. Two to three years, we could have the big second pop. And if you put that money into the home as equity and you don't plan to stay there and you have this I want to get away plan, it may be a bad idea. Best I can do for that one. I know it seems counter to my usual advice, but it all depends. Now, if you're going to buy that second property and just buy it and you're going to live in both places, you're going to have it like a remote investment, uh, bug out location, vacation property, pay the freaking house off. You're going to be there 10 years or more, pay it off. Because if it was paid off and you only had a hundred thousand in this trust 
And I said to you, I'll mortgage it and put $100,000 into your trust, and now you owe $100,000, you would never do that deal. Make sense? All right, let's go ahead and uh, take the next one. Richard says, what do you think about growing micronizate fungi to improve your garden with cold composting? In my opinion, many gardeners know they should cover their gardens with mulch in winter, but how many know why? Um, that's just one type of fungus that grows in mulch. And I don't really care about what fungus is going to grow in my mulch. I do like to know why I'm mulching and why wood mulching is, is such a great thing. And it does have to do with the vast fungi nets that are formed in your garden mulch. I guess my big response to this question, though, is think beyond winter. I mean, winter is a great time if you're not using the bed, especially to just layer it in mulch and know that that fungal action is going on in there. But if we understand why it's going on there and why we think about it in wintertime, we'll understand how to extend it throughout our entire growing season, which usually is a byproduct. It just happens. But it's still good to know what's going on. If you think about fungus, fungus needs two things to grow, and only really two things. It doesn't even really need light. Uh, some funguses actually like a little bit of light, but they can grow in fairly dark conditions. What it really needs is suitable organic matter to provide nutrients so that it can have a food source and a growing medium and moisture. And a temperature that's not too cold. There are t cold points where it gets too cold and a fungi will not grow anymore. But as long as it has those things, and, and there actually are some temperatures that are too warm uh, for, for certain types of fungi to grow, but then usually other types of fungi will take over and grow, at least on temperatures that we can expect to see in our backyards or in our forests. As long as we have that, we'll have fungal activity. And fungal activity is a great, I mean, fungal activity sounds like a bad thing if you're thinking about it in your body or in your nail bed or something like that or in the walls of your home. But in your gardens, in your ground, in your forest, in your orchards, it's wonderful because the fungi are the teeth of the forest. They are what takes the, the, the organic matter that has deceased and chews it up and turns it into soil. Without that, none of it happens. And they do so many other beneficial things with nutrient production and, and, and cycles, etc. But the reason we think about winter is just that it's about moisture. If you think about winter, especially in the temperate regions that most of the United States exists in, in, in these temperate regions, what we get in the wintertime is we get more rain, we get snowfall, which is more moisture, and we get a lower angle of the sun and less daylight. So we get less evaporation. So we get this high humidity in the organic matter in our forests and in our fields and our field edges um, continuously instead of moist, dry, moist, dry. It might even rain a lot in the summer, but then it dries out before it rains again. And that's not good for the long-duration health of the fungi. It starts to act, and then it dries out, and it just kind of dies down, and it starts again. But in our gardens where we're doing irrigation and we're doing thick uh, mulching, in our orchards, in our permaculture projects, even with big, heavy, rough mulching, as long as there's any kind of irrigation at all, we keep that moisture higher longer. We keep the fungal activity going on more. So understand that your mulch is not just about retaining moisture. It's about the biological activity going on in your soil. And regardless of what particular species of fungi we have growing in that mat, it's about having fungi being active that's indigenous to your area and designed to do that organic matter breakdown. Um, it's one of those things I've always meant to do and I've just never done. If I go out to my garden at any time and I pick up the wood, uh, cypress wood that I use as my primary mulch agent and uh, dig into it, anything other than stuff I've just laid down, it's all stuck together with this white fungi net binding it together, breaking it down, returning it to the soil. That is like gold for your gardening, gold for your permaculture, gold, gold for your orchard. It is replicating the forest in your backyard. 
and with irrigation and purposeful mulching. The other thing about that, right, um, we get a lot of breakdown through the winter with the fungi. We go into spring and summer. Now all the trees have green leaves on them. And the, the organic matter that's been broken down is not there. In our backyards, we're adding organic matter throughout the year. So we have the moisture and the fuel for the fungi to grow with uh, being provided continuously. Good question, good point. Let's take another one. Okay, next one comes from Woody. Woody says, uh, question would be, what is the best use for my single-shot 410 shotgun? What type of 22 should I get for a first 22? I have a Glock, Glock 23 as my main self-defense weapon, but I also have an old Ivor and Johnson 410 shotgun my mom gave me. The Glock is great, nothing to say about it. Uh, the 410 has pitting on the metal and some cracks in the wood, but it shoots beautifully. It's not the best home defense weapon since it's a single-shot situation. I've managed to stick extra cartridges in between my fingers and pull out four to seven shots in ten seconds. Is this a valuable gun that would restore and sell, or is it something or something like that? I don't have any sentimental value to me, but if it's not worth significantly more than the cost of restoring, I guess it would be uh, to keep around in case I shoot a squirrel. Okay, let's uh, talk about this. Let's talk about the shotgun first. What's the best use for any single shot 410 shotgun? Uh, probably squirrel hunting is one of the, the, the most awesome things that thing is good for. Uh, along with rabbit hunting, it doesn't, it's not going to do a tremendous amount of damage. Um, cause it's a low payload of shot, comparatively speaking. Um, I talked about shotguns yesterday, so I won't belabor this, but 410s are best in the hands of a shotgunning expert because of that lower payload, uh, less dense patterns. They require more precision in your shooting. Uh, but they're a great tool to train people with. If you're ever going to have kids, what a great thing to hand down. I wouldn't get rid of it. As far as the cost of restoring it, um, a little WD-40 and some steel wool, remove that rust and leave the pitting that's there there. A little bit of perma-blue on top of the places where the bluing's rubbed away, and, and that's good on the metal, and that's cost is like 5 bucks. Uh, as far as the stocks, uh, you could strip those down with something like Easy Off Oven Cleaner. If it's an old Iver Johnson, it's probably a pretty nice piece of wood. It's probably walnut under there. Uh, get a product called True Oil. You can buy a little bottle of that for five bucks. You won't use a quarter of it to do this with. And, uh, actually apply it with your finger to the stock. Um, and you do, you, True Oil, if you want to refinish a stock, you just want the stock to come out beautiful. Um, all you do is you get this True Oil and you take the tip of your finger. And rub it on the wood until you make a nice thin coating of it and let it dry. Sand it with um, with like triple O steel wool. Do it again. And then do it again. And keep doing that until you get the finish that you want. You get Especially with walnut. God, you get a beautiful finish with that. I have to, again, I talked about my Mossberg yesterday, my bolt action. I bought 50, 50 bucks into it. And uh, God, what a beautiful looking gun it, it is just from doing that. And that one I, I had to strip even with sandpaper because it had so much crap on it. But uh, generally you can do it with easy off oven cleaner. And uh, once you do that, you'll want to, uh, to to kind of like rough sand the little pieces of wood that stick up from that. Uh, SurplusRifle.com on uh, restoring military rifles give you more information about that. So you could restore that gun to looking really nice for about 10 bucks and some work. And it probably would be worth it to learn the skill. So I'd probably restore it and keep it. What's it worth? Um, probably $75 to $120 on its best day. Unless it's something special. Right? Ivor Johnson is an older manufacturer. It's a nice gun. If you want to sell it to me for $120, bucks, i would buy it. I mean, I'll put it to you that way just because I don't come across them every other day. Uh, but if I were you, I'd advise you to keep it. I'd advise you to do a little bit of TLC on it like I just gave you. Very easy. Learn the skill and keep it and pass it down to a son or a daughter. And if you never have a son or a daughter, pass it down to a niece or a nephew. And you say it doesn't have any sentimental value in it, put some in it. 
Take it out there and hunt with it. Uh, take it out there and shoot with it. Take it out there and take a young person out and teach them to shoot with it. All of a sudden, it'll have sentimental value. Um, twenty-two. It's the best first twenty-two to get. I'm split on this one. I really, if you're going to shoot a lot and you're going to train and you're going to want to become a really great marksman, start with a bolt action because it'll make you a more precise shooter. It's like learning to drive a stick shift before you learn to drive an automatic car. You learn to drive the stick, you can drive anything. You learn to drive the automatic, you still don't know how to drive the stick. So I'd start out with uh, one of the Marlin bolt actions, Remington, Winchester. They're all great. They're all very affordable. If I was going to do a semi-auto, I'm going to say 10-22. And if you don't get a Ruger 10-22, then get a Ruger 10-22. And if you don't get a Ruger 10-22, then get a Ruger 10-22. Uh, and if you still don't want a Ruger 10-22 after I've said it three times, look at like a Marlin Model 70. Um, and then Remington makes a good little semi-auto. Weatherby makes a beautiful semi-automatic 22, but I wouldn't recommend that for a first one because it's just too nice. Uh, Winchester makes a little, I think I like a little semi-auto Winchester. It's all right. But I would definitely consider a bolt first. It's going to cost less. You're going to shoot at a slower frequency. You're going to master your rifle. You're going to become a good shot first. And then you can pick up something like a semi-auto and go kind of to a next level. But if you wanted to start with a semi-auto, you said my first 22 is going to be a Ruger 10-22, I couldn't find anything wrong with that. I would just say in your practice that the, one of the best things you could do is you're learning to shoot, and it's going to be hard because the damn things are so much fun, is take a shot, lower the weapon completely to what they call port arms, which is kind of across the chest, breathe once, Look at the target, come back into shooting position, fire another shot. Whether if, you, if you're shooting a reactive target like a can or a bottle or a piece of skeet, same thing. It's so hard to do because that bap, 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 bap is fun. But if you do that, you'll become a better shot. Good question. Let's go ahead and take another one. Um, Jack, you talk a lot about a lot of different ways to store your wealth, food, supplies, precious metals, etc. But what do you think about using books as a store of wealth? Uh, while it might not be the most practical thing over the last year, something I've become interested in is buying books for the sake of building a personal library. Among my collection, I have textbooks from college on chemistry, Spanish, emergency care, uh, from my time as an EMT. Now I've taken to buying books such as survival guides, history books, technical manuals. I'll admit that I have a great love of books in general, but I wonder what your thought about the idea. Also, as, as you always advise, this isn't the only place I store my wealth. Just something I figured I'd ask about. Thanks for all your hard work and congratulations on 250 episodes. I think he meant 550 episodes. Keystroke error. I did that yesterday and said it was 501 instead of 551 in this title. Um, which many of you told me about. Anyway, um, so Chad, let me tell you, first of all, behind my, uh, desk, actually on the, behind my chair, because I face the wall, is a huge bookshelf, and it is literally loaded with books, in spite of the fact that a tremendous amount of them have been packed in boxes and already moved up to Arkansas is some of our preliminary move. In spite of the fact that there's several boxes sitting on my boat in my garage right now, ready for the next time I go up there. In spite of the fact that there's a giant pile of books on my nightstand and my ledge on my wall, upstairs in my bedroom. In spite of the fact that much to my wife's unhappiness, there's still a huge pile of books underneath our coffee table and the little baskets that she'd like to put something other than books into that I have filled up with my books. So, I'm with you. 
I think books are a great source of knowledge. And here's a couple things I'd advise you. If you think you'll like a book, buy it. And if you don't like it later, you don't see it as a long-term keeper, take it to half-price books and sell it. If it's a relatively new book, which is the only book you should not buy at half-price books in the first place, uh, they'll probably be happy to pay you probably 20% of the cover price. And you can use that to buy another book there for half of its cover price. And you save some money. Um, I like your assortment that you've got already. I've got a lot of the same things. I've got a lot of stuff on herbal medicine. Uh, there was a long time that I really researched. I actually thought about going uh, into the profession of being uh, someone that worked with herbal medicine uh, as a profession. I realized there wasn't a lot of money in it. and It was uh, it required better individual people skills than I think that I have. And uh, it also was rife with government interference And uh, the best way to do it would be like a chiropractor or somebody that had it as an adjunct, and that just wasn't in my cards. So I still have all of the research material. Some of the stuff that I bought was great, some of it not so great. The not so great stuff, where does it go? Half-price books, across the counter, I browse, they come back with an offer, whatever they say, I give them my books. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's my thought there. There is nothing that's a substitute for knowledge, and I've often said that I agree with the author Richard Bach, who said that the meaning of life is two things, education and entertainment. We are here to learn and have fun. We are the otters of the universe is the way that he phrased it. Um, if you believe that our spirit, our soul lives on beyond us, however you believe that, then we cannot die. Our bodies die, but our essence continues. And if we believe that, that it's very easy to make the next leap and say, well, then why do we come here? We come here for the, to, to impact the lives of others. You can come up with all this great stuff that makes you sound selfless. But even in all those things, when you are being charitable, you're learning. And most people actually enjoy being charitable once they take the step and start doing it. Everything that we do in life revolves around those two things. And books are the way that we transmit those things through time and from one person to another. I'm also very big on ebooks now. I have a pretty big collection, and I mean like on the Kindle and things like that. So they're normal books you could buy a copy, but you get electronically. But I'll tell you the other thing. When I, when I read a book electronically, and it really speaks to me, and I think this is something I really want to preserve, I get a hard copy of it. When I read an ebook that's not available in hard copy, sometimes I'll print it out, uh, punch it, throw it into a binder, add it to my library that way. Um, I, I'm completely with you. I think it's a great idea. And I think it, it, it could pay huge dividends in a rebuilding situation where so much of knowledge has been lost. Because people will literally be burning books, not for political reasons, but to stay warm in some of the worst-case scenarios. All right, next question. Jack, as all developed countries carry out fractional reserve banking, tying into the earlier question, and most own each other's debt. As of August 2010, the U.K. holds more than $400 billion in U.S. Treasury bonds, for example. How will the coming the world default happen? I can read plenty on the coming collapse of the dollar and the effect on the U.S., but I assume if the U.S. goes through economic collapse, the U.K. and all of Europe will follow Mark the Limey. So Mark's over in the U.K., so this is near and dear to his heart. Um, maybe, sort of, kind of, possibly, definitely, sort of. Um, the United States would be the ship right now that if it sunk could drag many of the other ships down with it. There are many other nations that could sink that wouldn't drag the rest of the world down, but th that, that dynamic is changing. Um, the world is kind of saying, you know, we, this whole being tied to the U.S. so heavily is a 
danger. So maybe we'll tie our, the ones that aren't big enough to do it themselves, we'll tie themselves to the ship of the U.S. We're not ready to invest in them yet. China, Brazil, India, um, you know, that uh, all of these 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 nations need to come up with more of a mutual fund approach to their currency holdings. But the problem with that is one eventually one becomes the dominant one. I think in the future that is uh, is is China. Uh, Russia's playing in this world too, but I I don't think they're going to pull it off the way China does. And um, eventually you end up beholden to China the same way. Now they're they're looking to make this happen. Because they're putting their money into massive amounts of commodity. But we have to understand about as much hoopla, including what I give China, about how how smart they are about the way they're doing these things, is that their entire economy is about the same size as the entire economy of maybe two major United States, two of our states. So they can only have so big of an impact, but that's growing and growing. I mean, that's growing at 8% a year. We, we look 10 years down the road and see what exponential growth does to it. But the whole thing coming down together, you have to understand something. For a, a, a debt to collapse on default, someone has to call the debt due. And basically we have all the developed countries sitting around the poker table like I talked about earlier. And any one of them could call. But if you call, you're probably not going to win in this game of poker. Everybody's going to lose, so nobody wants to call. It's more fun to just keep growing the pot. And it's safer to keep growing the pot. So you won't see a default on a global scale until somebody is in a position where they can really benefit from being the person that calls. And no individual or no group of just one or two nations that are strongly aligned are in that position yet. And it's very hard for them to get in that position because look at the strongest nations, like that are, that are financially the strongest nations right now, like China. Well, they're in hock to the U.S. huge because they own so much of our debt. They they rely on the U.S. to export their crap to to export to, uh, to Europe to export to all these other nations. So if they cave that in, then their entire growth concept of their economy falls in on itself. So a global collapse is not as likely as specific regions collapsing. And what you see is a big transfer of wealth, and I believe that transfer of wealth is going to go to the East. And I believe that's why you're watching the billionaires of the world, like them or hate them, I hate some, I don't hate some. I mean, you know, I mean, it's not like because you're a billionaire you're a bad guy, but a lot of billionaires are bad guys, that's kind of how I feel about it. But all of them seem to be placing their pot, so to speak, in Asia. And that tells you something about what they are seeing coming and what some of them are creating. So what will a global economic collapse look like? Really, really bad, but probably not global. If it's economy-based, if it's economically-based, it's going to be one nation moving economically against another nation, or a, a uh, conglomeration of nations moving against another conglomeration of nations. It's going to look like corporate warfare. That's what it's going to look like. It's not just going to be one day everybody's happy and the next day it's patriots to come and collapse everywhere in the world. It's just not going to happen that way because the dynamics are set up to prevent that in the first place. Where to punch you in the... It's like you're looking at these guys in a boxing ring and you go, one of these guys is going to have to beat the hell out of the other guy. But what if every time I punch you in the face... There's a, a, a robot between my legs I can't get rid of that punches me in the nuts. 
And every time you punch me in the face, the robot turns around and punches you in the nuts, and there's nothing you can do about it. How likely are you to want to punch me in the face and try to knock me out? How much damage would you do to yourself in the interim? That's the standoff economically in the world right now. It's more complex than that, but that's as deep as I can go on a short one. Um, this email comes from me to, uh, to me from Damien. Damien says, long-time listener to the MSB and just wondering if the line in the, the, the class and the subject line uh, was going to be, uh, if you were going to go to it since it was near Hot Springs. And it's um, Fighting, P Fighting Pistol Mobile, April 2 and 3, and former military to civilian transition for defense. I'm going to have to look that up. I really haven't looked yet. But I wanted to really talk more about his, uh, his, his meteor part of his question. I asked due to recently getting hit with the reality that a lot of my military training is pretty much useless as a civilian here in CONUS. I think it is something a lot of former uniform bearers forget. The rules change dramatically when confronted with lethal, lethal force situation, and you're not overseas doing your duty that way. Here, the legality and morality rules are very different. Just in the middle of uh, a conversation with my fiancé, I had a reality check happen to me that I may fall back on my previous training and, and have now sought to change that level of mastery to more one conducive with self-defense situation instead of the offensive mode I was taught with while I was in the Navy. I'm not sure if this makes sense on the show or not, but I thought it would be cool to find out if you had any advice on the subject matter. Well, it's a great show question, and here's my thoughts on it. First of all, um, congratulations on um, on opening your mind to that. I mean, that's that's great. Uh, the fact that you understand that is huge, and I'm glad you do, because I think a lot of people really don't understand this. That they, they and a lot of people that go to a lot of uh, military type clinics and what have you really don't understand this. And what I mean by that is. People go to all these tactical trainings and they go into these group scenarios where they're with another group and they're training like they're law enforcement or they're training like they're a tactical arm of the military or something like that. And I'm sorry, that's not the way things work in, in our society. And even in a shit at the fan scenario, I mean, why are you training to go in with an armed group and invade a home to steal their stuff? Right? And if that's what you're doing and that's your plan, I don't want to help you. In fact, I want to see you get your ass shot for thinking that way. Because that's not what it's all about. It's about defending what you have. It's about the right to what you've preserved for yourself. And that defensive mode is entirely different. Even law enforcement officers have to realize this. Law enforcement officers are trained primarily to do what with an armed conflict? To, to put the bad guy down. The guy's in a building. We've got to go get him out. The guy's shooting at me. I got to return fire. There's overlap, right? There's definitely overlap. And I think for law enforcement, it might even be more so than for military. But they are two different worlds. Your world is more, you're in your house, in bed, in the middle of the night, somebody comes in the door. You're in a restaurant somewhere, eating dinner with your wife, and some maniac comes in and starts shooting the place up. So I, I'm glad to see more, it seems like more and more people... Uh, are working toward trying to get this concept down. And I'm, I'm glad to see a class like this, but I won't say much more about it than that today. I just wanted to kind of bring the point up, get people thinking about it. I'm thinking about doing an entire show uh, about being a prior service military person that was trained about one concept with combat and understanding that It's more of a defensive role and how things do change. I think that's a great thing. And maybe I will look up this class and go to it. It sounds kind of cool.
Okay, the next one comes from Janet, and Janet sends me an email with a summary of a proposed bill uh, that's on GovTrack right now, and it's, uh, let's see, what is the number of this thing? It's H.R. 4646, and it's called the Debt-Free America Act, and that sounds like a pretty good thing, being debt-free, but here's the summary of this thing. It it basically proposes that we impose a 1% fee offset by a corresponding non-refundable tax credit on transactions that use a payment instrument, including any check, cash, credit card, transfer of stocks, bonds, or other financial instruments. So basically, anytime money flows, the government will take 1% of the money that flows in any way, shape, or form, including with cash. So I go down to Walmart and I buy a six-pack of beer for $6.50 and I give them $6.50. Uh, they would have to tender basically almost like a national sales tax, $0.6.5 cents to the United States government. But this would work more like a value-added tax. Yeah, because when Walmart got the six-pack from the wholesaler, they would also pay 1%. And when the wholesaler got it from the brewery, he would pay 1%. And when the brewer uh, bought the barley, yeast, and hops uh, from uh, the grower, he would pay 1%. Not only that, when the brewer paid his lease, he would pay 1%. When you pay your mortgage, you would pay 1%. So you'd pay 1%... On any time, any money went anywhere. The only way you would shelter money from this is like if you came to my house and did some work in my backyard, and I gave you fifty bucks to do the work. Technically, I should give the government the, uh, you know, the the, the nickel, but uh, I'm not going to, and they're not going to come looking for it because it's small potatoes. But any kind of real transaction. So when you go to eBay and you buy something, one percent. Use doesn't matter. Anytime the money flows, one percent. What do we get in return for this? Uh, we were supposedly going to run this until 2017, and in 2017, the individual income tax will become obsolete. There will no be, be no income tax on personal income ever again. There will be corporate taxes, but no individual income tax. Um, no alternative minimum, minimum tax. Um, I don't know, you throw in no capital gains tax, man, and I, I'm, I'm liking that. I guess capital gains tax would be part of the individual income tax for individuals anyway. So no tax on your income ever again. Uh, if they would do it that way, uh, Janet doesn't like this. I'd actually support it. If, if we had it in stone where it cannot be altered and it cannot be raised, it would be 1% forever and that is it, forever and always. It can be no more. I love it because one thing it would do is flatten distribution systems. We'd, we'd have another incentive to, to reduce middlemen. It would actually make it stronger to do business with companies in the United States because if you're buying something from China, it's going to go through more steps than something coming from Florida. So it's only 1%, but, you know, um, I don't like it. It's still another way the government takes our money away, but at least I'm not pu- punished for my production. Uh, we wouldn't need an IRS at all anymore. We need a very small body to make sure that, uh, you know, the same way that states enforce their sales tax. Uh, it could be done at, at the, the financial level, merchant accounts and things like that so easily. It would definitely simplify things. My fear, they would do this. They would get it through, and in 2017 came, we'd get a tax cut instead of a tax elimination. They'd go back on their word. And then one day, oh, we need to make it one and a quarter percent. Now we need to make it one and a half. So I don't trust them with it. But here's the big thing, and this is the big thing I wanted to help you guys out with. When you see something on GovTrack.us, and somebody sends you something there, the big thing I told the Janet is, it does, we can debate this all we want, it doesn't matter. Um, sponsor of this bill is Representative Chaka Fatoth a Democrat from Pennsylvania District 2. Co-sponsors, none. 
If you look at a bill on GovTrack and it says co-sponsors none, don't let it ruffle your pretty little head because it ain't going to happen. Whenever there's a bill with any chance of going anywhere, that means other people have to support it. Those other people that support it, their congressmen are like greedy little kids. They like to have their name on stuff. So if it's going to go anywhere, even if it's just going to get positive press, somebody's going to throw their name on there and say, let me co-sponsor that for you and help you out there, uh, Mr. Fatoth. Let me, let, me, let me help you with this. So they can get their name on it. So, they can be a, so if it ever does anything good, they can stand up and say, look, I did that. I helped get this done. Right? Because that's what they, that's, that's their entire campaign spiel. When it says zero, don't worry about it. It's referred to committee right now. That means, uh, it's mired in, in the cesspool that is DC. And without any co-sponsors, it's not going anywhere. Just thought you guys might like to know that one. Uh, next question. I don't have a question, but a comment for the community. When making mead, aging really does make a huge difference. I made my first mead last year. I made it about half strength or only about 6% alcohol. I was told this would be drinkable sooner than less high alcohols to make it harsh. While it was drinkable within a couple months, it really needed to be mixed with a little fruit juice to be considered tasty. How dare you mix mead with fruit juice. <laughs> I let it sit for about six months, forgotten in the garage, uh... Refrigerator, and when I went back to have some, I was blown away with the difference in taste. It wasn't just drinkable anymore, it was good, and the goods in all capitals. That really has me motivated to make more and stick it away for a year or so. I heard this from others, but I could not fully appreciate the real improvement the little time makes. This is not an incremental improvement like the flavor of the taste of two different brands of beer, but more like the difference between Kool-Aid and fresh fruit juice. The moral of the story is don't let how your mead tastes after a couple months stop you from making mead. Hide it in the back of the closet for a year and you will be amazed, Brian, in Oregon. And I think this is why mead makers, if you're a mead maker, you need to make lots of mead. You need to make it every year. And you need to reserve some of this year's mead for five and ten years. Especially your higher alcohol meads. I've never made one as low as 6%. Meads I'm generally targeting somewhere in the, the neighborhood between 9 and with a very high alcohol mead, 14 to 17%. Uh, I have made them that high, and they are amazing. And the higher the alcohol, the longer they do have to age. But even a, a relatively low alcohol mead, a seven eight percent mead, uh, is amazing mazed, uh, aged. Uh, there's a, a recipe in one of Charlie Papazian's books called Bar Shack Ginger Mead. That stuff after about three years is amazing. It seems like a long time, but if you create kind of your own little mini wine cellar somewhere and you age this stuff. Um, Once you get into that second or third year of making it, you've always got some that's 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 got some age on it. Uh, a year will generally do most meads pretty well, though. It really will. Um, I've had meads that at three to six months uh, are foul tasting that turn into amazing things a year down the road. Year and a half, two years of aging, it's amazing what they turn into. All of those harsh flavors mellow with time, and they don't just mellow; they merge. And a lot of times, it's not that the flavors really are that bad. It's that they're distinctive. And as they mellow and merge together to form a common palate, that's when a mead becomes something special. So good advice there, Brian. And everybody should give mead making a try and understand it is a patient endeavor. That is why maybe you should make some table wines and some beer uh, alongside of your meads. So for the next year, you got something to drink from your efforts. You'll be less likely to, because every one of those bottles that you open at 60 days and drink and go, it's not that great, is a bottle that could have been wonderful 
uh, you know, 12 months down the road. Uh, last question. It's really a comment. Comes from Dean. Dean, uh, who, uh, who runs countryconsultant.com. Great website. Some other ones. Sends me an email from a link to cnbc.com. Secret survey shows inflation is already here. I guess we didn't know that. Dean, thanks for this because you gave me a rant to go out on today. Uh, this is by John Malloy. There might not have been a second round of quantitative easing if the Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke shopped at Walmart. A new pricing survey of products sold at the world's largest retailer showed a 0.6% price increase in just the last two months, according to MKM Partners. At that rate, prices would be close to 4% higher a year from now, double what the Fed has mandated. An inaugural price survey shows a small but meaningful increase on 86-item grocery baskets, said Patrick McKeever, MKM Partners Analyst. In a note, most of the items McKeever chose to track were everyday items like food and detergent and made by national brands. On November 3rd, the Fed announced its much-anticipated purchase of $600 billion in Treasury securities, an effort to keep market rates low since the central bank's benchmark rate is already at zero. The Federal Open Market Committee statement said currently the unemployment rate is elevated and measures of underlying inflation are somewhat low relative to the levels of committee judges to be consistent over the longer run with its dual mandate. Yada, 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 blah, 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 blah. Here's what it comes down to. The Federal Reserve is saying there's no inflation, we need it. And people like us are saying, hey, we don't have any money, this is the worst time of inflation, besides there already is inflation. And when people look at something as simple as the things we buy every day from a Walmart store, oh, there's inflation, uh, six-tenths of a percent in 60 days. The bigger note here, this is the false recovery, people. I keep saying it. I've said it since 2008. I said there would be a false recovery before the crash was even fully on us. I said this is how it would go. The, the Fed would keep pumping money in, that the government would keep spending money, that nobody, that everybody would just keep doing business as usual and more of the same. That sooner or later, it's like giving a drunk, alcoholic, drug user a credit card. He looks really happy for a while until the bill comes due. And then he's worse off than ever. Because he's done more damage with the money while he had it, and now he owes more and he's broker than ever before. The way this starts out is as inflation goes up, As the price of goods and services go up, especially on things people have to buy. Let's face it, the kind of things they're talking about here at Walmart, you're going to buy it. If it costs you six-tenths of a percent more, you're going to buy it anyway because you need it. Now, six-tenths of a percent is not even that much of a deal to you. Four percent at Walmart, you go spend $200, you're spending $208. So the individual, if you're cash-strapped, I know eight bucks is eight bucks, but still, it's not doesn't seem that big. When you look at a retailer the size of Walmart, $8 more for every $200 spent is billions of dollars. And that inflation is going all the way through the pricing chain. And what happens is all these public corporations come out with record sales numbers. Now, they might not even have record profits, but they have record sales. And many of them will have record profits. We're seeing that with some of them right now. And then all of a sudden, investor confidence begins to become restored. And so the money begins to flow back into the investment securities. And everything begins to go up, but all the damage is done. The real pain of the inflation is, is 
felt heavily a year to two down the road. This leads to a secondary spending contraction, meaning that people have started to spend money again, realize that everything costs more, and they have to do without certain things, so they start to contract their spending. As it happens a second time in a short period of time, over a three, five-year period, uh, the, the investment uh, community has already been through this before. They see the second one coming. They panic greater than they did the first time. They liquidate securities even faster, and we go into a depression versus a recession. I could be wrong about that, but I've been saying it since 2008, and other than feeling that we might fall into it without my bubble, I've never doubted it. I'm telling you, be prepared for it. If it doesn't happen and you're prepared for it, you're still going to be better off. If it does happen and you're not prepared for it, it's going to kick you in the ass. And this is this is what I see. This is the quantitative easing. This is the questions about the worldwide central banks. This is, you know, government spending more money. This is the trillion dollar deficits. It's what it's all adding up to. Anybody should be able to see the writing on the wall. The only thing I think I could be wrong about is my timeline. It might take longer to rebound and longer to fall. But when it falls the next time, it's going to make what just happened look like a joke. And I said that after the dot-com and the Tyco and the 9-11, all that washed out. I said, you watch. As bad as people think this bloodletting was, the next one will be twice as bad. And it was. I wasn't on the air then. I can't prove it, but I'm telling you I did. I'm telling you that's what I see happening again. Up, smash. Up, smash harder. The next time up, we're coming way, way down. The farther you fall, the more it hurts when you hit the bottom. Be careful in the future. That's what I see out of this. Also, I want to finish with something. There's a little video. I won't play the audio over here. It's about 10 minutes long. Uh, but it's uh, explaining... Uh, quantitative easing in a way that even the Congress can understand or something like that. It's on YouTube. Somebody sent me a link to it. Uh, it's like two little cartoon characters talking in this weird voice. What is the quantitative easing? The quantitative easing is, and it's hysterical and it's sad at the same time. I'll put a link in today's show notes and maybe I'll put the individual link for that on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, I think a couple of you sent me that. Everybody that sent me that, that was pretty cool. With that, I'm going to wrap up today. Remember, if you haven't entered in the contest, you can't play, so go ahead and try to win those Cobra Rigger belts. And remember, I'm doing the same thing on Friday. Friday will be another chance to win. I'll be checking my email box throughout the day, and uh, I should have all of the winners notified uh, by tomorrow morning. If you're listening to today's show, today's show is the 16th, and it's the 17th. Don't bother playing. I'm going to tell you all the belts will be claimed by then, but do tune in Friday for it. Remember, i got a cool show coming up tomorrow. I'm not telling you what it is. You're going to have to tune in to find out. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Revolution.